0: All right, for our third and final segment, let's tackle a little bit more in the way of science and technology. In a nice addendum to where the chat we just had with Emily wall, I would cite this article by Jacob Aaron from New Scientist. In reference to the possible planet 9 orbiting our sun way out there, 700 times the distance from the Earth to the sun. Peace notes that now the race is on to spot the planet directly. Using the Hubble Space Telescope would take too much time away from other observations. And Planet 9's suggested location is so far from the sun, it would barely reflect enough light for us to see. So astronomers are getting crafty. Instead of visible light, they're looking for stranger signals that could help narrow the search. Researchers at McGill University in Montreal have calculated that it should emit another signal that we can pick up radio waves. If this turns out to be true, radio parallax will do our best to broadcast from Planet Nine. But seriously, this proposed planet is large enough to have retained a small amount of heat from its formation. Using Uranus and Neptune as a model, the team calculated this would be tens of degrees above absolute zero, which means it would faintly radiate millimeter-length waves. And it just so happens we have a bunch of telescopes searching the skies at these wavelengths, though planet-hunting astronomers don't normally use them. Instead, these telescopes look for the cosmic microwave background, the CMB. Peace quotes a Nicholas Cowan of McGill, who notes that cosmologists never look for moving targets. But his colleague, Gil Holder, who works in a neighboring office, heard the news of Planet 9 and asked Cowan if it would show up in CMB telescopes. When apparently they did some calibrations of Neptune, and apparently Neptune is so bright in this particular wavelength that they use it as a calibration source. Pretty ingenious. Meanwhile, over at NASA, apparently more than 18,000 people have applied to become astronauts this year. This smashes the previous record of 8,000 applications back in 1978. Now, with just 14 spots, they have less than a 0.08% chance of getting picked. The boom in applications is being credited at least in part to NASA's new social media promotions, including its campaign centered around the 2015 movie The Martian. Now, in this program, we've made a regular practice of making fun of economists. We've also talked about some of the problems there are in... uh, doing research that just backs up previous research. The Economist magazine, on its March 5th issue, notes that um, that in practice, checking old results is much less good for a scientist's career than publishing exciting new ones. But without such checks, dodgy results sneak into the literature. In recent years, medicine, psychology, and genetics have all been put under the microscope and found wanting. As previously reported on this program, one analysis of 100 psychology papers published last year was able to replicate only 36% of their findings, and a study conducted in 2012 by Amgen, an American pharmaceutical company, could replicate only 11% of the 53 papers it reviewed. Now, note to the magazine, it was the turn of economics. Although the piece makes the claim that the science of economics goes back to Adam Smith in the 18th century... Uh, That it is only over the past few decades that its practitioners, at least some of them, have come to conclusions that the natural sciences reached centuries ago. That experiments might be the best way to test the theories about how the world works. And indeed, a rash of results in microeconomic studies, which are looking at the behavior of individuals, has suggested that Homo sapiens is not always Homo economicus, the paragon of cold-blooded, rationally assumed the paragon of cold-blooded rationality assumed assumed by many formal economic models. Now, as reported on this program with some glee over the years, these economic models make assumptions that are demonstrably false, such as that people will make rational decisions based on the evidence presented to them, and the more evidence, the better, the more choices, the better, etc. So we applaud the, the efforts to see whether people really conform to the theories, and of course, they don't. The Economist notes that when they attempted to repeat 18 laboratory experiments, quote unquote, in economics, well, 11 of the 18 papers, 61%, uh, came out the way the original papers did. That is below the 92% replication rate that would have been expected had all the original studies been as statistically robust as their authors claimed. But if you compare it to the standards of medicine, psychology, and genetics, it does pretty well. The article concludes by noting that natural scientists may have to stop sneering at their economic brethren and recognize that the the dismal science is indeed a science. Well, we applaud these efforts, but we're not sure we're ready to go that far yet. And we're going to go out on an even shakier ground in conclusion here to talk about a book review, also in The Economist, that takes a look back at a 2008 book where four American academics produced a book titled The Party Decides, Presidential Nominations Before and After Reform. And that title, The Party Decides, has been shortened to T.P.D. The thesis of the book was that political parties have formidable power to influence voters in presidential primaries, which, of course, is uh, on all of our minds right now as the Republicans and Democrats um, continue to mimic the Three Stooges. Now, apparently TPD was never a bestseller, but it was extremely influential among political reporters. Magazine notes that during the Obama presidency, a new generation of these young journalists uh, shunned the sources, leaks, and scoops that are pursued by their more traditionally-minded colleagues in favor of the sage council of academic political scientists. Many of these whiz kids treated TPD with odd reverence. And for much of 2015, they dismissed Donald Trump's chances in the Republican primaries by relying on the book's claim that parties usually guide voters toward, quote, acceptable, unquote, nominees. They make the claim here that this may be contributing to an observer effect. People are looking at the party decides and concluding that the party hierarchy is going to guide voters in a certain way, and thus, uh, you know, there's no chance they're going to pick Donald Trump except witness what's happened. They're trying to make the claim here, the authors of that book, that, well, uh, these Republican decision makers read a smart take after smart, te- smart take, telling them that Trump didn't have a chance. So, so GOP party leaders didn't take any action. Except that the reason smart analysts believed Trump had no chance was because they thought GOP leaders would eventually take action. We find this whole thing to be an interesting topic. The piece notes that that throughout George W. Bush's presidency, most American political reporters were allergic to any numbers more advanced than a cherry-picked poll results. And that tide did not start to turn until 2008 when Nate Silver, a baseball writer who developed statistical expertise by predicting how players would perform, began posting forecasts for that year's topsy-turvy primary elections. Thanks to his rigorous analysis and a sterling track record, he was bullish on Barack Obama's chances long before the Iowa caucuses, and in the general election, he correctly called 49 of 50 states. Now, people of the old school, like Joe Scarborough back in October of 2012, said, anybody who thinks that this race is anything but a toss-up right now is such an ideologue they should be kept away from a typewriter, computer, laptop, and microphone for the next 10 days because they're jokes. At that point, Nate Silver tweeted Joe Scarborough an offer of a $2,000 bet that Obama was going to win. Scarborough apparently passed on the idea. Well, it appears we don't have time to read uh, more from this piece or extract a great deal from it. You may want to do that yourself, dear listener. I mean, as recently as the 1960s, there were very, very few primaries that were involved in picking the presidential candidates. They were just mostly window dressing. That changed after the chaos of the 68 Democratic Convention, which the majority of Democrats were clearly against the Vietnam War, and yet the party wound up going with Hubert Humphrey, who was Johnson's boy and would not say a bad word about what was going on in Vietnam. The parties then introduced binding primary elections, and according to the magazine, Democratic voters made a disastrous choice among anti-war insurgents and went with George McGovern in 72. Well, there's a lot more to that story than the fact that he was a disastrous choice. It was a little bit matter of Watergate and political sabotage on an epic scale to derail Mr. McGovern. Of course, the the nation's press seemed to go along with the idea that he was some kind of not-to-be-trusted leftist when in fact George McGovern had flown bombing raids, many of them, over Germany during World War II, while Dick Nixon was playing cards down in the South Pacific. But the big controversy here, who is in charge? Is it the party elite or the grassroots efforts of uh, the voters? Well, what do you think? I'm going to side with the authors of the TDP who conclude that uh, the parties tell the electorate how to vote rather than voters tell the party whom to support. And we're going to see how that goes. So far, Donald Trump appears to be disproving that hypothesis, but let us see what happens to the Trump candidacy. Whatever else you may want to say about Mr. Trump being a narcissistic jerk, which he is, he has killed the Jeb Bush presidential effort, and for that, I think we all owe him uh, a great deal of gratitude. Right now, the analysis per TDP of Trump in 2016 is that, well, the party hasn't decided. Not yet anyway, so anything goes. We'll see. That about does it for today's program, which was produced by Edward McMillan. Our thanks to Emily Lakdawalla of the Planetary Society. She currently has a wonderful article in the Planetary Report, the official magazine of the Planetary Society. I believe some of it might be available at planetary.org. Her look at the year in pictures is, is something we cannot reproduce on radio, so you need to go check it out. And we... Hope you will. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. The next week's program, we're going to have some fun speaking with Margaret Talbot about her illustrious father, actor Lyle Talbot. And yes, he was in Plan 9 from Outer Space. We'll see you then.